Back in the day, Australia's newspapers were the go-to place for fiction. But the stories can be hard to find, and newspapers don't last forever. So this is where we come in. I'm Dr Rod Lamberts, and this is To Be Continued, a podcast from the Australian National University that extracts literary gold from Australia's newspapers in the 19th and early 20th century. Our old newspapers are treasure troves of forgotten literature, crammed full of stories offering glimpses of a past, both familiar and foreign. Unless I could prevent it by some desperate action, my aeroplane would be in the hands of England's enemies within the next few instants. Nerved to despair and caring little what became of me, so long as I could foil Borisov in his treacherous design, I cast about frantically in my mind for some means of preventing the flyer from passing absolutely into his possession. My eyes alighted on the engine, and I had an inspiration. The aeroplane would be useless to its captors if I could destroy its machinery. And the construction of the engine was a secret. Torture could not make me yield up. As this wild idea entered my mind, I acted on it. Stealthily, so that I should not attract Borisov's attention, I shifted my position. When I was near enough to the engine, I shot out my right foot with all my strength at a certain lever. The crash was the first warning Borisov had but it came too late for him to avert the ruin of his plans. With a rending, tearing sound, the machinery jammed. Borisov plunged at my throat, and amidst the grating shrieks of the broken engine, the aeroplane toppled sidelong and went whirling downward to the sea. You've just listened to an excerpt from The Wickham Aeroplane by Francis Marlowe, which was republished in the Perth Daily News on February the 15th, 1910. Why did you listen to that? Because in this episode of To Be Continued, we're talking about modernity. But I'm just a host, and what we really need is an expert. So in this episode, I'm joined by Associate Professor Roger Osborne from the College of Arts, Society and Education at James Cook University. Roger is trawling through the To Be Continued database looking for stories which highlight humanity's engagement with innovation and technology. He's currently around the 1910s, and that's exactly when today's story is set. Roger, how are you? Um, very well, thanks. I'm uh, looking forward to talking about uh, aeroplanes and the, the way that they found themselves into the fiction that we're reading in these podcasts. I don't see how they couldn't. They're so exciting. I mean, when I, when I read this story, and I've read it a number of times now, I have to say up front, it's terrific. Like, it's just a good, fun tale. And I'd love to see the, uh, the movie adaptation. We've got a brilliant young Englishman about to attempt the first ever crossing of the English Channel in an aeroplane he invented himself. The machine was Wickham's aeroplane, and the young man was Oliver Wickham, its inventor, who had just given it a last trial trip before an attempt on the morrow to win the rich prize offered for the first heavier-than-air airship to cross the English Channel. There's a dubious Russian character by the name of Colonel Borisov who is perhaps too interested in the Wickham aeroplane. A tall, bearded, powerful man of middle age. This was a Colonel Borisov, a Russian of charming manners, who since the appearance of the Wickham Flyer was known everywhere as a keen aviator. Which leads to the dramatic disappearance of the aircraft, with Wickham and Borisov on board the day before the crossing. In the morning, the newspapers of the world told their readers that the Wickham aeroplane and its inventor had disappeared as though they had never existed. So, it's a great little adventure yarn by itself. But what I'm interested in 
you selected it from the uh, to be continued database as a representative example or a solid example of modernity. And what I want to know first is, and I think people listening would like to know as well, what what is modernity in this context? What are we actually talking about? Yeah, it's it's interesting that the words of modernity and modernism are, are often used uh, interchangeably. But when we talk about modernity, we all have our own modernities. Like at the moment, we're dealing with digital cultures, but at moments of a, a transition when there is a new invention, that that is the the everyday modernity. So in that first decade of the 20th century, there was a lot of people trying to be the first to fly in a powered aeroplane or a gliding aeroplane. So for the people of that time, that was new. For them, it was very modern. Absolutely very modern at the time. I'm, I'm interested though, you said it was about moments of transition. Um, so does modernity have to relate to overt technology or could it be changes in thinking, changes in cultural practice as well? Or is it literally, does it tend to be about these technological shifts as it were? I think those two things are really interrelated because technology tends to change our thinking. So if we look at something like an aeroplane to get from one place to another, like physically we get there quicker, but also our sense of time changes because of that. So the way that we think about ourselves and the world is necessarily affected by technologies um, like you and I are speaking to each other now over, uh, over a vast distance. And so that's, a, that's quite a change for us. It's an expectation that we have that this is going to be an easy thing to do when I don't have to travel hundreds, perhaps thousands of kilometers to have this conversation with you. It's um, over in a matter of seconds making the connection and, and having the conversation. So our sense of time has really shifted. But if we think back to, if we go back 100 years or more, when we have aeroplanes, automobiles, fast-moving steamers, telegraphs, all of those sorts of technologies, people, their expectations about what they can do changes. And then if their expectations about what they can do changes, their expectations or their thoughts of themselves as humans change as well. So technology, thought, sticks together all the way. So it's like stories of the possible or a newly imagined possible or recently imagined possible, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, look, it's interesting if we think about science fiction in in that way. Sometimes science fiction precedes what is possible. Like your question of is it thought or is it technology? Sometimes the ideas come first. The imagination of a particular author in the 19th century would have been writing about flight like this. But with this story, we're, we're looking at... Uh, at somebody writing about motorized flight as it's happening. And so they're trying to find the right words. How do we turn that experience into fiction? How do you include the possibility of going from the United Kingdom to France across the English Channel? It um, hadn't been done before. So in at this time, uh, 1910, when this uh, story was published, there's just a lot of firsts happening. The first manned flight the first flight from here to there, the first passenger flight, all of those things are happening at, uh, at that particular time. And, and it's happening in a time where we're leading towards one of, the, one of the big conflicts of the 20th century as well. And so there's a little bit in this story that presages what's going to happen in a few years' time as well. I, I was wondering about that, but I might, um, I might come back to questions about that in a moment. It, it's, I was going to ask you what why is the Wickham aeroplane such a good example, but it sounds like you've kind of told me. I mean, it's flashing new technology. It's it's life-changing concepts of time and everything else. So it's pretty clear why this would be a good example. Were there any other examples from the database that may have competed for your attention on this? Was there anything other than planes that might have stood out? 
Yeah. So first of all, once I started, once I found this one, I, st I started to look in the database for other stories about aeroplanes. And because a lot of the work we're doing is in process at the moment, they're not there. They're in, there will be stories in newspapers somewhere that's just waiting for us to add them to the database. So as far as aeroplanes go, there is a, a serialized novel called The Flying Girl that shows up quite a bit. But as I was looking around, I was thinking about the emergence of new technologies and the, and the cinema is one that emerges at, the, at this time as, as well. And so even though we have uh, this as a, as a story printed in the newspaper and people are using their imaginations, we're not too far away from people going to the cinema and seeing these things uh, on the screen. And it's interesting for this project in particular that the serialized novel runs alongside serialized movies at the time as well. So about five years from this particular time, when some movies are being uh, screened in a local theater, there is a serialization of the story happening in the newspaper at the same time. So there is transmedia happening 100 years ago when we might think about that happening now. All of those things are happening at this same period that we're talking about. Okay, so the, like the movie theaters were doing the same thing. That's uh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Mm. Yeah, the modern equivalent of what we have a, a book being released, something on Netflix coming out, and uh, maybe there's a podcast related to it as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's uh, it's very similar. We might not, might not expect those sort of things to to happen at this particular time. But as these new technologies emerge, creative people and business people think about ways in which to engage audiences. And so that was one way of doing it. So we, we will have an editor of the newspaper in which this story appears, making decisions about what their readers might want. And so the Wickham Aeroplane is one of those that is reprinted from the uh, the Paul Mall magazine, it's a reprinted story and it's circulating quite widely across the world. So the editor of that newspaper has decided that it is a story that their readers would be interested in and one that's been preserved until this moment when we get to read it and listen to it formed as well. Oh, look, it's, it's such a cracker. And I mean, and on that, I'm a kind of standard everyday, cis-normal, boring kind of uh, middle-aged white guy. So for me, this this tale appeals to me a lot because it's such a a boy's own adventure kind of story, you know, a rollicking roller coaster of a tale and all that. Um, is that typical, though, of a, of a modernity tale, would you say, for the hero? The kind of targeted at boys or boy like attitudes, very kind of swashbuckling and exciting, or is that, is this not a fair? representation that are they a lot more diverse no and I, I think we're on a kind of a slippery slope between modernity and modernism where modernism is is a more literary genre the writers tend to uh, write fragmented stories that has uh, open-ended tales but that doesn't mean that a story like this um, can't be seen somewhat in those terms um, so that's where modernity makes it easy to include something that might just seem like a popular story yeah but it it does still engage with new ideas. And so there are a lot of popular writers and a lot of literary writers who are engaging with, we can call it genre. If it's the boy's story, they're engaging with these sorts of genres. So the author that you mentioned at the opening, Joseph Conrad, drew on a lot of it, uh, a lot of these genres. It's almost like boys' own stories, but he presented them in a, in a different way. He wrote them with a more literary angle. And his work was published quite widely in newspapers and magazines. So even though something might seem like it's popular or throwaway a sort of story, it, it can have a, a, a lasting impact. Unfortunately, our author, when I tried to find out a little bit more about him, uh, the word obscure came up next to him. There's little Little that's known about him, so I can't really say much except that he was widely published with these yeah. sorts of 
popular stories. Uh, he published a lot in newspapers and magazines and in book form, but we just don't know much about him, like a lot of writers who found their work in newspapers and magazines at this time. That's interesting. Prolific and obscure and well-published, but is there, is there any reason to believe it might have been a, um, a, a nom de plume and it's someone else writing that might have made it harder? Yep. And that's that's one of the challenges of a project like this, that we have writers whose whose names we might not know. Yes, it could be a nom de plume. That just hasn't been attached to a particular writer. So the researcher hasn't made those connections. Or this author might just have fallen into obscurity because in the end, they aren't going to be remembered for high literary quality. So <laughs> what, what, what are they then remembered for? We're remembering this story now, today, because... It's attracted my attention first, and I'm sharing it with you. But it does uh, it does take us to a to a particular time uh, of change that allows us to talk about something that's has quite a significant impact on human existence, aeroplanes, mm. and the change of the way we think about moving from one place to another. So along that line, then it's definitely talking about something new, innovative, and that we know, with the benefit of hindsight, has dramatically changed the way we interact with and see our world. But um, this tale is also it's very positive, really. On the whole, you know, there's a there's a new technology that's working very well. Lord, she's a wonder! cried the war office expert admiringly. That's a forty mile pace. His exclamation passed unnoticed. The others were watching in enthralled silence the airship's graceful, unfaltering flight. A mile away, she inclined upward and soared easily to a height of 200 feet. This conquering a foe or at least, you know, rising up against the odds. I am bound to admit that he took his defeat like a gentleman when he found that neither by persuasion nor threats could he induce me to undertake to build aeroplanes to his order. So overall, I'd say it's very positive, but... Is this a, a standard trait of a, a modernity story that people are very positive or do modernity stories come with strong cautionary tales or negative sides as well from this era, I mean, in particular? Yes. Once again, we're moving between these these two different terms of modernity, which can be used to talk about these sorts of innovations and modernism. And I'm going to have to keep flipping between those because people will be familiar with both of those and think modernism, they'll associate that with people like James Joyce and uh, T.S. Eliot, who were innovators in the way that they wrote stories and often denigrated the popular narrative. And so the way that I might answer that is that there are going to be a lot of stories that em embrace the innovation and modernism and modern modernity and included in their stories, but still they have to please an audience. And so the expectations of a reader of of a newspaper and a magazine, the the, the sorts of popular fiction that finds them find themselves into those, the majority of them are going to be neatly tied up at the end. One of the things that we're doing in this project is trying to see whether that is true. I'm making an assumption without having seen all of the serialised novels that appear in Australian newspapers. One of the questions that we'll have is, is there an author or is there a, a series of, of stories that uh, goes against that, where either one particular newspaper embraced one particular author that wrote stories that did not end neatly or did not end happily? Those are going to be... Uh, discoveries for us that will enable us to tell something different, tell a different story about what regular people, but even uh, scholars might expect to be found in newspapers like this. It's kind of an expectation that they are going to be popular, well-rounded stories that tie up neatly, but 
I kind of hope to find one or two or three that enable us to say something different about Australian readers of serialised fiction in newspapers. Okay, that, then I think I need to step back for a moment. I don't know how well this is this is doable, how possible it is, but can you at all neatly pull apart modernity versus modernism? Because the hints I'm getting are that maybe, I may have misconstrued, modernity is more likely to be more positive and modernism may cover similar topics but with different, less neat stories or more negative consequences, etc. Have I got that at all right? Or how could, can you unpack that a bit, for, a bit more for me or is that making it... So, so like modernism is the one that really sees the weakness in human beings. Modernism, if we talk about writing, it's a mode of writing that looks deeply at human psychology. Modernist writers are influenced by Freud, by Einstein, and all of these ideas that we were talking about where we're thinking about the way that human beings think differently. Freud's work is in is, is happening during these decades. And because we are thinking more about what's inside of us, some writers are thinking, well, how do I turn that into a story? So internal monologues, uh, stream of consciousness becomes a part of the way that um, some writers told stories. And so that concentration on psychology is uh, embraced by more literary writers and critics, mm. um, but it's often seen in a negative light by people who are just after a good story. Quite often, the, the, the concentration on those big ideas or particularly on uh, uh, psychology gets in the way of a good story for most people. But that does not mean... So we're making a distinction between these two types of storytelling, one that tries to engage with psychology and fragmentation and um, th there is no absolutes. So there are writers who are trying to do that. But then on the opposite end, there are writers who are just writing to write a, a neat narrative that will entertain people in a newspaper on a daily basis keep them coming back next uh, next day to read the next instalment and the next instalment. But within that sort of a, an expected narrative form, sometimes the issues that might entrance a modernist writer also entrance a popular writer of popular fiction, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to engage with some of the things that are affecting humans, like the, the technologies that we're talking about or psychology, they're just not going to uh, fragment their stories or make it difficult for uh, for readers to engage with the story. So modernist in that term is something that doesn't fit with these stories that we're reading. So that's why the term modernity captures the engagement with innovation, the engagement with technology. Aeroplanes, cars, trains, radios, film, we're leading towards television, radio, all of those sort of sorts of technologies are going to be included more and more and more in the fiction that we are adding to the database. Right now, we're in the in the 1910s, heading towards the 1920s. Um, once we hit the 1920s, it'll be a different modernity. New technologies are happening, just like today, where uh, computers are more accessible to people on an everyday basis. We're going to start to talk about accessibility. More people have access to radios. More people have access to aeroplanes. And so then more people are thinking differently about ideas of space and time. But it all starts in fiction, going back to 1910 with something like the Wickham Aeroplane, where, let's say, for the first time, somebody tries to turn the, the idea of human motorized flight into fiction. This, As you were talking about that, it made me think the possibilities for using these as overt or explicit propaganda would be 
strong. These stories, you know, could really get inside the zeitgeist and, and motivate people in certain directions if used for, you know, evil instead of good. Yeah, it is interesting that we have some goodies and baddies in this story. It's almost set up. It's it's quite a familiar story that we have this new technology that is wanted by somebody else. And that's one of the core elements of the story is that our bad guy familiarizes himself with the inventor in order to steal the invention because they need to need to understand the, the technology in order to create their own. Yeah, propaganda is a word that fits that quite well, is that this is a British story about British people and British inventions. And there is a, a Russian bad guy who comes along to try and steal this British invention for, for what use? We are at, a, at that time where we're on the eve of World War I, and it's not going to be that far away from, from the moment where conflict sees aeroplanes being deployed to drop bombs on people. Um, so it's all of those series of firsts that are happening as well, where what is an aeroplane for? An aeroplane has been invented in order to transport a human being from one place to another more quickly than imagined before. What can an aeroplane be used for? It can transport goods from one place to another and enable people in, a, in remote places to receive things that they might not be able to get quickly. But at the same time, we're not far away from inventions like the aeroplane being used in warfare. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's 1911 or 1912, I think, is the first recorded dropping of a bomb from a flight. And uh, with uh, the First World War happening in 1914 and 1918, the use of aeroplanes in conflict becomes very real for, uh, for people and their imaginations as well. Um, and for the, for the first decade of the 20th century and into that second decade of the 20th century, it was amazement that this new technology and the possibilities for it. But I would wonder if we would find in any stories whether the feeling towards, you know, what new technology like an aeroplane is good for, whether that changes, whether the negative use of new technology might come out in other stories, particularly those stories of World War I that are being published in the second decade of the 20th century and later on. Yeah, it's very, it's very, reading that story, they, they characterize the bad guy, Colonel Botisov as such a, what is he, you sort of exotic, tall and handsome, commanding figure, towered over the hearers as he spoke rapidly and excitedly. So he's, he's been set up as quite a, a, a sparring partner, if not foe for Wickham to overcome, which I think is, I mean, it's a really classic sort of trope, isn't it? To, to, to set this up that way. Um, yeah. The, another question I have really is, is there a typical kind of audience for these stories or, or a, a cluster of typical audiences? And are there any people who you would say were actively not audiences for these kinds of tales, like that even if they're not deliberately um, left out, they would certainly not find these things appealing? Was there any evidence or suggestion of this sort of audience category, so to speak? That's a, a really interesting question that has challenged historians of reading. For the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a lot of work done on, on the histories of reading. And we, we can look in newspapers and magazines and see them as kind of a miscellany of all sorts of things, that there's news, there's advertisements, uh, there's entertainment. And then in one section of the paper, there'll be fiction or there'll be some poetry. There might be a serialized novel or there'll be a shorter work like this one. And so uh, historians of reading sort of look at that, that, the idea of the newspaper or the magazine as a bit of a department store. And so the newspaper is 
for more than just one person. It's, it's quite often for a family. And if we look at where some stories are situated, they're quite often surrounded by advertisements. Look, I'm going to go with, along with you today and say this is a good boy's own story. It wouldn't, wouldn't go astray in the boy's own annual because of the adventure story yep. that is central to it. And because it's describing something that's very new and interesting to young boys who might aspire to be inventors or flyers at this particular time. So I think in the end, that's the really engaging thing about doing this sort of work that we we get to make a lot of guesses in doing this sort of work, in making an assumption about who a reader is. But in the end, you have to support that with further evidence. But it's a good way to use our imaginations in the end in order to, to, to try and reach some sort of a, um, a at least a preliminary statement about who the reader of the Wiccan aeroplane actually might be. Well, you'd have, I can, you'd have to kind of you know, infer from, as you say, from the advertisements and stuff. Um, was there much research done by the papers or the publications themselves about market share audience where they're more or less successful? Was that really a thing back then? So at the, the period of time, what we are talking about, 1910 with the Wickham Aeroplane, do we call it the field of advertising? Is an emerging field. The advertising man is is about to emerge in the 1920s. It's going to be such a such a much larger uh, part of everyday culture. So the 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 editors of of the newspapers or, or or magazines they are going to do that sort of market research, or they're just going to have some confidence that they know they know what their readers want. When you see a newspaper in decline, it's quite often because the editor is not making the right decisions. But uh, I think when you are able to find, so we can we can look at newspapers and and study them in the way that we've been talking about by saying this newspaper is filled with advertisements that are targeted for this sort of person. Therefore, we can assume that this is a sort of reader who's going to be reading this story. When you're lucky enough to uh, have a biography of an editor or a, a study of an editor's time at a newspaper, or even luckier if an archive contains the correspondence and records of a particular newspaper or magazine, then, then you can do more than guess. You can actually see uh, an editor or a publisher making these decisions, uh, writing a letter to an advertiser saying, we really need your product in order to attract these readers. These these are the readers we're trying to draw to the newspaper. So yes, guesses towards more certainty through research involves a lot of what we what we can do with a database of uh, serials in Australian newspapers. It must be the fun part too, testing your guesses and making these assumptions. I think that would be that'd be a great way to go to work. It is fun, and it's um, it's also really satisfying when it's not just you making the guesses. When you, you're actually having a a conversation with colleagues, or even better, the the sorts of conversations that you have within the scholarship that somebody is writing about a particular newspaper and making assumptions, and somebody else is writing about a another newspaper and its audiences. They're not quite talking about the same things, but it's developing a conversation in the scholarship that's being produced about print culture. And even reading that can be satisfying. It either validates your assumptions about a particular newspaper and its readers and, and what they're aiming for, or uh, it might not validate it and you have to change your mind and look at things in a different way. Have, have you ever been wildly wrong? Like if you had a really strong assumption and then it's just proven to be absolutely terrible and you're... <laughs> 
thought what was i thinking yeah, look i i'm i'm always practice caution when making assumptions about readers from the advertisements that appear around a particular story because there is enough evidence of oral histories or other studies of readers that show that your assumptions are not always right that there will be a young woman who's going to read the boy's own section of the paper or vice versa that it, there's enough evidence to to make you hesitate before just leaping in and making a, an assumption. And I think that's good to be cautious in that way. Yeah, it makes you a good scholar. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> I'd probably make you a good detective as well, so I'll be careful what I say. Kind of pivoting a little bit, are there any examples of modernity that would take their inspiration from the past or, in the case of Australia, from traditional appreciations of landscapes, technologies, or First Nations individuals? Like, is that is that ever featured that you're aware of, or is that completely out of bounds, so to speak. It's always about new modern sort of Eurocentric technologies and so forth. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, that's one of the, the intriguing things about this project is that there is such a mixture of stories and novels that a vast majority of the material that's published in newspapers is coming from overseas. Mm. While at the same time, there is an urge hand in hand. And that's one of the things that I'm really interested in seeing how that actually plays out in the Australian fiction that is serialized in newspapers. We can see it in books. We can see this sort of de development happening in what's published in book form. But how do I find the answers? We've got to do the work, put the data in the database, start to, to look for titles or keywords. The methods that we might use to, uh, to find what we're looking for is something that's going to emerge as this project proceeds as well. So sort of a hypothetical, well, maybe it isn't. Would it be a story of modernity if back then or, or today people wrote about incorporating, say, Indigenous fire management practices into the European or modern version of the way they handle fires, etc.? Would that be considered modernity by adapting or embracing an existing technology from an unusual source? Or would that be something different? Does it have to be new? Does it have to be innovative? Does it have to stem from I suppose, broadly speaking, the culture that's telling the story? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because if we say it's modern and innovative, it is for one side of the situation that you're talking about. So for the European settler who has not paid any attention to those sort of things for all the time that they've been here, yes, it's going to appear new because they haven't done that be before. But beside that, that's a, that's a practice that is much older than anything that could be called modern and so it is perhaps something that if we were to, to stretch that any further, the questions that might come along with that is that it challenges the idea of modernity itself in the way that we use that word, because Indigenous fire practices are ancient and, and a significant part of a, of a culture that's been around for such a long time. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Is, it? is it the innovation itself? And if that innovation is we took something we didn't use before, is that sufficient or does it have to be literally brand new. I, I think that's, I don't know, I find that really intriguing. I, I don't know if there are examples of it, but I find it intriguing. And it kind of leads me to another question, which is how similar is is your impression of modernity stories then and now? I mean, are the, are the bare bones of them pretty much the same or are there any striking differences that you're aware of? Yeah, that's a question that just leads us to, um, are there just a, a small number of core narratives that we use? There, there are quest narratives, the hero fights the monster narratives, there's those, those sorts of models. 
But I think what we find is that the challenge of of any new technology is going to create a drama. And then that, that's what in, that's what ends up interesting creative writers, that they want to look at the ways in which the technology might be a disruptor, that there's drama in the person who has the as the innovation who's going to challenge the traditions of a, of a particular culture. And that's going to fit in any time. So the effect that uh, new technologies might have on farms and farming, for instance, is a story that could be told throughout the uh, the recent history of Australia that uh, new technologies are going to take the place of what a, a farmer is and does. And then it uh, has an effect on those as human beings, but it might also have an effect on the landscape as well. And we've seen popular narratives being written about that in uh, in recent times. So I think if if that's then a question about modernity, yes, we have our own modernity. And it doesn't mean that the narrative that we might find from 1910 is going to tell the same story as the one for the present. Today, novelists, short story writers, poets, filmmakers, television script writers, painters, that they're going to see the tensions of what we might call modern today in similar ways, I think, to the way that uh, somebody's going to look at an aeroplane and feel awe or feel inspired or feel troubled by mm. what that means. I wonder, as you were talking about that, I was thinking... It seems to me that there's a proliferation of fiction and sort of pseudo fact-based stuff at the moment, health and the human body, and it's it's the extent to which it can be extended, modified, etc. You know, we have superhero stories, we have directly medical stories, we have investigations about um, what the brain can actually do, how much we can read it, etc. Is that, it, I'm, I'm, this is completely anecdotal and personally, you know, biased, but it I wonder if there was as much of that kind of thing going on back then. I mean, was the focus on health, the body, and how we work as strong as other things like like flying, like um, the agricultural technologies, et cetera? Do you have any feel for something like that? Would would I be even vaguely right according to what you said? I think you're vaguely right in all sorts of ways. Uh, I, I think that's a history of my career. Vaguely right. Yeah, I, I think my mind is going to the to the Spanish flu now, mm. the flu of nineteen nineteen, and I'm wondering now. I'm wondering. I don't know. Are there stories? Are there novels that are about the challenge to humanity that that brought that are similar to stories of contagion that that are, are written today, um, so that I can generate a question out of that. Then. In a, Sends, sends me the researcher on a search to see if that's true. Uh, we, we know that in this second decade of the 20th century that there are a lot of World War I narratives, and that continues into the 1920s, that writers are, are writing because they're trying to understand or express something about what World War I was and did to the world. I can imagine, and it would make for a good search to see whether there are any novels or stories that engage with the effect of the Spanish flu from 1919 and beyond, or, or any other, we might say a natural disaster. We know from the work that one of our colleagues who might be appearing on one of these other podcasts is doing that bushfires are a significant element of narratives that are appearing in serials. So is it natural disasters? Is it uh, pandemics, floods? Is it man-made problems that are going to be found in, in some of the narratives that we're going to, um, I can't say discover them because they are there. We're just going to be able to become more aware of those sorts of narratives than we were before by identifying them in the newspapers, reading them, 
in some way and then testing our assumptions about what they are and who their readers are and what they mean for then and now. Listeners of this may be scholarly, but they may also be of a more general or less uh, expert audience in these realms. What would you suggest for the stuff that really interests you, modernity and so forth? Um, where would you send them? What would you send them to watch, read, listen to? What would be good primers? What would be good for the more advanced uh, practitioner or indulger as well? Yeah, well, it's I'm I'm drawn to writers who engage with and challenge the ideas of what it means to be human during these these transformations. So there is a a writer called Eleanor Dark. Uh, it'll be a question if any of her work was serialized, but she is writing novels in the 1930s that are engaging with changes in human nature, changes in society, in the opportunities for uh, young women in particular. Um, she has uh, characters in those novels who are challenged by and challenge the certainty of what might be called Australian culture at the time. I kind of like those characters. I'm drawn to stories that focus on characters who find themselves a bit lost. And they're lost because perhaps they think they should stick with tradition, but they're feeling something else. Those are the sort of stories they're sometimes called a buildings roman. It's like a coming of age story. So it's quite often young young people who find themselves in a situation where mum and dad's world is not their world. They, they can see something new coming and it might be just social change, but it might be technological change. It might be employment opportunities that they see before them that take them away from what mum and dad want them to be. So if that is something that's emerging in Australian Australian writing in particular, it really comes together in the work of Eleanor Dark. Excellent. I do have one other question which sort of relates. We've touched on it, but we haven't really dug into it. The place of, the place of women in these stories, uh, are written by them, for them, featuring in Tales of Modernity, I'm getting an impression, which is also probably indicative of the times, that maybe it's not as strong, that they're not as strong an audience nor protagonists in these stories. Is that an unfair characterization in your experience? I think it is. I think we're so during this period, we're moving into a period where we, we use the term the, uh, the new woman or the modern girl. And that's one thing that I'm expecting to see more and more in, in the stories that are appearing in newspapers and, and magazines is that the new woman and the modern girl who is not following what's expected of them, that there are stories that we are we are seeing coming into the database at the moment that have the title of like shock girls and other protagonists of the stories that are really fit into this idea of the new woman or the modern girl who is cutting her hair short, wearing short skirts, um, driving cars, perhaps drinking, perhaps smoking, and so not following what's expected of of them as young women. And so that that's an aspect of modernity uh, as well, that we have research that is continuing to be done on, on the complexity of what young women were facing at that time, still fighting for the vote in many places, but just taking control of their lives. The drama of, of that is something that's very attractive to writers and also the readers who are engaging with those stories when they're published in newspapers but also in book form in a lot of a lot of cases huh, that's interesting so in fact the the position of women and what what is traditional and, and not is almost an iconic modernity story then or a modernity tale or debate and discussion yeah, I think it fits, even though we don't have any female characters in the Wickham aeroplane, it might be something that that sooner or later we are going to see 
a story that involves a protagonist who is a young woman who wants to be a pilot. And if that is something that uh, her family or her society think isn't thinks is not right for you for her, that creates a conflict that generates um, uh, a story that's going to be of interest to a lot of people, whether they agree with it or not, they might chastise the young girl for reaching beyond a grasp, but they might celebrate the young girl for doing the same thing. So whichever way you might lean, it, it does uh, it does create the drama that that makes for uh, a good story that um, would be serialized in newspapers. Thank you very much for, for talking to us today, Roger. It's been extremely interesting. I'm, I'm now going to have to go away and think a lot about the difference between modernity and modernism because I didn't realize I was blending them together. But yeah, very much appreciate the conversation. And I will also go go away and think about modernism and modernity some more again, because there's always a lot to think about when we start using those words. Cheers. That was Roger Osborne, and you've been listening to the To Be Continued podcast from the Australian National University. If you'd like to hear the Wickham Aeroplane performed in full, we've published a special bonus episode read out for you wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell someone about it. We'd love as many people as possible to hear these amazing stories. In our next episode, we delve into the weird and wonderful world of early children's fiction 